0: Thanks, Amy. I'll tell you what, if you're serving up here at the front, you're going to get fit. This is, there's, a, there's a real distance between here. We're all walking, aren't we? It's good, but. Okay. You're not, so sorry. Um, in fact, the distance is the same, isn't it, regardless of the chairs? But anyway, we're going we're to find out what happened to the front rows and bring them back so that we can all sit a little bit closer. Uh, But nice to see you all. Um, Everyone just check your... Females, I presume. uh, Everyone just check your fingers for a moment. Has anyone lost a little diamond ring? It's not diamond. Uh, But um, if you or your child tells you they have, um, we'll just put it up in the church office if no one comes and claims it afterwards. It was found out in the car park. Um, So just uh, be mindful of that. It's a bit colder. Fingers shrink and rings fall off. Some fingers shrink anyway. Leave your Bibles open. Romans chapter 14. And we look at this uh, first half of this chapter. And um, I, I love Romans. Uh, I've said that before. Many of us here, I know, share the same conviction. Um, but I really love how practical uh, Paul gets, particularly towards these last four chapters. And uh, this chapter and the next chapter in particular, are really, uh, uh, well, they're just spot on. It's timeless. God's word is timeless. And God's word is timely. And uh, yeah, I just uh, want to pray. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you that your word is uh, timeless and your word is timely, and um, we thank you that it's applicable in, uh, in every culture um, and across the ages, and yet, Father, we acknowledge that um, we need your help, the Holy Spirit's help, to, to think deeply and carefully about what it is your word is saying, because it was written in a particular culture at a particular time, and so we ask now that you'd be at work uh, through my words, that you'd be at work uh, as we expound um, your words, you'd be at work in our hearts. Give us ears to hear, hearts uh, that are soft and, uh, and wills to want um, to continue partnering with your spirit uh, in transforming our lives to become more and more like Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, so far in Romans, uh, we've been reminded that our spiritual acts of worship is about uh, essentially the transformation of the way we think, the transforming of our minds, and, uh, and as well as um, uh, choosing to not conform to the patterns of this world. Um, rather, in light of God's mercy, we now see ourselves entirely differently to the way the world sees us, or to the way we used to see ourselves and other people outside of christ in in light of god's mercy towards us uh, we're told at the beginning of chapter 12 we're called to live completely different lives lives that reflect god's mercy as that's been revealed in jesus christ and these are radically transformative lives um, that will stand out uh, that will uh, be easily identified as different not weird or perhaps weird for the right reasons but as different those not yet in Christ uh, will see the way we live differently, the way we respond differently, uh, the different, uh, the, the, everything about us as we're on this journey of transformation, and they'll want to know why, and eventually they'll want to know who. who who's made this difference in your life, and, and why are you different? But of course, it's never really that simple, is it? It really isn't that simple. If it were... Would not we already be one uh, unified powerhouse of a community um, that would have already taken over the world centuries ago? You know, the Beatles in 1967 would not have needed to sing the song All We Need Is Love. Uh, neither would John Lennon go on to want to sing uh, Imagine and you know, that sort of lament about, or ideal, euphoric, idealistic semi-lament uh, about the fact that we, we want to get somewhere, we, we need unity, we need peace and love, but we just don't seem be able to get it if it was simple if it was just as simple as putting into practice those three verses from romans chapter 12 um, we would have resolved all those issues surely so why is that why is it so difficult why is living in response to this uh, incredibly free mercy and grace that god has shown us in jesus christ this good news why is it not so straightforward well one reason at least might be that we all have so many different opinions God in his goodness has created diversity amongst us. Um, And sin, uh, not created by God, uh, our our choice to rebel against sin, has further separated that and warped and made a dysfunction, a mess of that diversity and individuality. So we have very strong uh, opposing opinions. Um, We have different uh, responses to different experiences that we have in life. Um, We form, over time, deeply held convictions about the way we ought to live or about the way others ought to live. And we do that often, especially in the church where we have these deeply held convictions, opinions and responses to experiences about how others or how we ought to be living as disciples of Jesus. And so, sure, our unity is grounded in the gospel of Jesus. It's all about Jesus, what he's done for us, and that's our common unity, um, the reality of his death, his burial, his resurrection, um, which brought about his kingdom, this new kingdom way of living. We get that. But how such good news works out in our lives on a daily basis in community can often be an area of conflict and challenge. I know many of us, in fact perhaps all of us, uh, if you've been in church for any, any, even a, sh- a short period of time, certainly a medium, certainly a long period of time, you will have experienced this and seen this and felt it. Maybe you've been involved in it, maybe you've been uh, a victim of it. And this is particularly the case when it comes to agreeing on what we should and should not do in the way that we engage with the world, in the way that we associate and we go about living our lives in the world. Um, Just a few examples uh, that come to mind. Um, What about the movies that we watch or the movies that we choose not to watch? What about the music we listen to or choose not to listen to? Uh, What about the drink we consume or the amount of it for those uh, who think it's okay to consume? Um, What about the places of entertainment we go to or how many times we go there? Uh, What about this one? What about what sort of car we should drive or how often we ought to change cars is just a random example. Um, what jobs should a Christian have? Which career should a Christian person, uh, person simply avoid altogether and say, I can't be a part of that? Do we retreat from the world and set up our own institutions and say, you know what, we've just got to do it uh, ourselves, I know that's, that's what birthed Christian schools in our country. That was kind of the sentiment uh, back generally around the 1980s, early 1980s, where the majority of schools, uh, Christian schools, came about. It was initially to say, you know what, we're so displeased with the, the, the government schools that we, we need to do it ourselves. And so we're going to institutionalise, set up at Christian ed- institutions uh, for our own children. And that has, thankfully, as we've engaged with the scriptures more over time, we've realised that that's never been God's call uh, in... Uh, if, if, for, for the church um, to retreat exclusively uh, maybe for a time but certainly not permanently um, but there's all these types of opinions you even what i've just said you might go i don't know if i agree with that um you know maybe maybe you and i would see differently to that um do we just keep to ourselves or do we just go uh you know quietly about our business um subversively resisting the powers that oppose our christian faith and convictions well, it seems there are almost countless ways to live our lives, even as disciples of Jesus. And this kind of conflict and challenge concerns something known as our Christian liberty, or as we Baptists like to put it, our freedom of conscience. You know, it's one of our deeply held virtues as Baptist Christians or Christian Baptists. It should be Baptist Christians, but anyway. Um, it's one of our deeply held things. We, we, we are the original dissenters, you know, the pro, part of the protestant movement. Um, and we like to say that, sorry, ultimately, uh, you know, no government or no body, including government of the church, stands over me and tells an individual what they can and cannot do before God, you know. It, it's our own conscience. And there's a biblical precedent for that. How free are we in Christ? And for the early church in Rome to which Paul's writing to, this conflict over Christian liberty, over freedom in Christ, surfaced uh, initially in two major areas. And the two major issues, the first issue was this, it was whether or not it's appropriate to eat certain foods as a follower of Jesus. Um, God's Old Testament people, uh, you will know, uh, always had specific food laws. They were very um, explicit, stated clearly um, in the Old Testament. And they observed these religiously. It was part of part of their lifestyle to show they were different to the world and there are great examples of uh, of Daniel and his friends um, doing that in Babylon and um, and and eating that was what they held dear to and they were allowed to do that Um, but for those who had since come to faith in Jesus in these new churches as they're growing and particularly uh, throughout the empire the Roman empire um, some questions remained as to the place of these laws where do they fit do they even need to be observed anymore Do we still need to keep them since now that we're Christians, we've come to faith in the same God as revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ? Um, And if not, well, which ones are we free to ignore? And if so, well, then we must teach these new Christians, these Gentile pagan background Christians about our food laws and we must insist upon it uh, and make sure uh, that they don't just eat anything they like because that's what it is they seem to do. Well, the second issue concerned observing special holy days which makes sense right like the sabbath or other jewish festivals and and especially this was a question in light of god's new kingdom jesus jesus came and taught some radically new things about god's new kingdom That's why we now call it the Old Testament and the New Testament. A massive change has happened. Christ came and and flipped it on its head. Uh, He's fulfilled everything uh, in the the law that God tried to achieve through his people and and who they failed to do, and Jesus completed that. And now in Christ, there's this new humanity made up of both God's people and new people, uh, outsiders, pagans, Gentiles, who now become the one new humanity in Jesus Christ. So these holy days, do, do we... Are they still important? Um, Are they rituals that we need to observe? Do they really matter? If they're important for our people for hundreds of years, why would God suddenly change his mind because because he revealed himself in Jesus Christ? You can see all the confusion that would come into people's minds. Aren't these special days important? Should not they be observed at all times? Well, these two very issues were really controversial for the early church as it was birthed and it began to grow. In fact, just of these two issues alone, uh, that is, what food to eat and which holy days to observe, these both uh, prove to be serious threats to the unity of the church. We already see that unfolding in the New Testament. Uh, where they had councils, they had to come together and uh, Paul rebukes Peter at one point um, because Peter starts going back to Old Testament law and uh, he's trying to figure out what, what all this means and, and, and they end up making conclusions based upon what the Holy Spirit has revealed to them. You can read about that in, in Acts um, and, uh, and so on. And most of these letters that Paul writes come out of those sort of discussions and that wrestling with what it is that God is now doing there were serious threats to the unity of the church. All of a sudden, the church finds itself made up of two very distinct groups of people from two very different backgrounds who have to come together as worshippers unified in Jesus Christ and uh, to worship him. And so this morning's passage uh, in chapter 14, and uh, next Sunday as we move into chapter 15, um, or no, we'll finish 14 and then continue on into chapter 15, they basically deal with how can we continue to be unified How can we continue loving each other as brothers and sisters in Jesus in light of all these kinds of issues? In the church in Rome, it became clear that there were weaker brothers and sisters and there were stronger brothers and sisters in Christ. And Paul does something really clever here, which we'll get to, and I hope I don't muddy the waters. My prayer is that I make it a bit clearer. But it's very clever what Paul gets to here. It would be very easy for us to think about weaker brothers and stronger brothers in two categories like that, where obviously we all want to be the strong brother and sister, right? No one wants to be weak. We all want to be strong. and So that's what we all strive to do. And here's the irony. Those who are actually weak, and we'll get to that, who those are according to what Paul says here, um, never ever think they're weak, do they? You don't say, I'm I'm going to be a weak Christian. Uh, You actually think you're being strong. You actually think what you're defending and what you're standing for means you're a strong Christian. And so we all categorise ourselves, uh, when we hear of these two categories, we all go to the stronger category. And Paul does something very clever here. In in Rome, the weaker brothers and sisters were those whose consciences were convincing them, them, convicting them about Jewish food laws. Laws which forbid certain meats in favour of vegetables and in particular meats that have been sacrificed to idols. Their consciences have also convicted them Um, some of them about the observance of holy days. You know, they sort of stand there going, we had this beautifully rich Jewish tradition that we were a part of and now all of a sudden, yeah, we're kind of meeting in synagogues but that's getting a little awkward, so we're kind of now meeting in homes and suddenly, well, what do we do? How do we meet? What what are we meant to be practising? But we need to be clear about something here. The danger was that um, these divisive arguments were actually erupting over what Paul determines as non-essential issues. These are non-essential issues. And let's be clear, that's what they are. Uh, What to eat and what not to eat, which days to celebrate and remember and which days that no longer matter are all second what we call secondary issues. They're non-essential issues. They may seem important. They may... And think about it. Why do we observe them? Because we want to show that we're dedicated to God. We're passionate about God. We love Him and we want to do the right thing and please Him. So that's the motivation But they are are actually not priorities, they're not gospel issues, according to the teachings of the apostles, who themselves teach the ways of Jesus from his own life, his own teachings and his example. And that's the objective ruling that Paul is making on these particular issues in light of the gospel, which we'll look more specifically at in the rest of chapter 14 next Sunday. So there's these two groups of people. Paul attributes here to the problem. They're the weak and they're the strong however depending on which side of the issue you stand will depend on who you think is the weak and the strong romans 14 verse 1 accept those whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable manners matters or secondary issues or you know contentious matters and paul continues this also into chapter 15 so who are the weak well It'd be good to clear up some misconceptions. I used to used to have these misconceptions. I assume I'm fairly normal, fairly average. Uh, so at least um, these are ones I've had in the past. Maybe you can identify them. Who are the weak? It's easy to think, as Christians free in Christ, that the weak are like the legalists. You know, they're the ones that love the law and they're, they're legalistic, and and they and they're, they love these laws and these rituals and these restraints and things, because it helps them please god and work their way towards salvation right those who insist on keeping laws they do so to connect with god to please him to be righteous in his eyes but i want to say after looking at this that cannot that cannot be the case that's not what paul thinks of as the weak he hasn't just he's not just labeling all legalists as the weak or all weak as legalists and the reason why we know this is that's not how paul deals with legalists if you want to know how paul deals with legalists in the church go and read galatians Right? And if you want to look at some of the names that Paul calls legalists in the church, right, he's doing something different here. So it's not legalistic people who are the weak. Uh, in fact, he, la- he puts legalists under a curse, you know, along with even an angel that might turn up and present an idea of doing something in order to please God rather than accept his free gift of salvation in the gospel. So Paul can't be talking to... Um, legalistic people telling the church family to welcome the weak among them if they were legalists he wouldn't be saying he'd be saying remove yourself away from them don't get involved in them with them they'll lead you astray they'll lead you back to the old way and uh and you you'll you'll be away from christ so it can't possibly be legalists in that sense but it is important to say that the weak here in romans 14 doesn't at all refer to a person's christian character or their commitment to god being weak in faith isn't about salvation or how much you're accepted in God's eyes, okay? It, it, that's irrelevant whether you're weak or strong. We're all accepted in God's eyes because of Christ who lives in us. It's about what your faith in Christ living in you permits you to do in all good conscience. See where our conscience comes in? That's how the Holy Spirit works in us. In fact, it's one of the most profound ways he works in us, through our conscience. In other words, how a person's conscience is influenced by their faith. Have a look at verse two of chapter fourteen. One person's faith allows them to eat everything, but another person whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. Again, if you're a vegetarian or a vegan, that's not what this is talking about, right? If you're a vegetarian or a vegan because of your faith, because you, you actually think that God forbids you from eating meat, well, that's that's probably is something we need to be you need to be looking at it and reading here. You can see there's nothing wrong with being a vegan or a vegetarian, and there's nothing wrong with being a carnivore. Um, according to our faith. The issue is we're in the weak category if either of those views have been attached to or are made in response to the level of faith that we have. So this kind of weakness is something uh, that we actually all have. In fact, if we could pause and reflect for a moment, and we probably won't, but I encourage you to at some point, think about in what areas might you be a weaker brother or sister in? Because it's not just about the foods that we choose to eat, uh, the hope of course is that we are always growing towards maturity in Christ and so at some point in some areas we will actually fall into that category of being a weaker brother or sister as we, we grow and mature in Christ. We become more and more confident as the years go on in who we are not in ourselves but who we are now in Christ Jesus and the more we get to know Jesus the more we get to understand him and live with him on a daily basis and know that he has gone before us and done everything for us that we could that we couldn't possibly imagine or hope to do and achieve for ourselves, then we become stronger in our faith and less less prone to attaching faith to the different choices that we make uh, in terms of being weak. So don't ever presume, if you hear someone or if you yourself think, gee, I'm really weak in that area, it's not a character flaw, okay? Those who are weak in the faith. It's not about being a weak, half-faith, Person or a or a lower level Christian. The weak are most passionately most certainly passionate and committed to Jesus. And their motives are pure in that they want to please him in their lives, which is often the motivation for getting so caught up in the secondary issues and making them primary issues in the first place. So who are the strong? If that's the weak, who are the strong? Well, the strong are those, according to Paul here in chapter 14, are those who, who seem to be freer in the application of their faith. In Christian living. They are those who are perhaps further down the path towards maturity and growth in the gospel. The strong are spiritually mature, whether that's because they've been Christians longer, uh, although not necessarily, uh, or because they've had a deeper engagement with the gospel and, and that they've thought it through more and, and, and the kind of freedom that comes uh, in knowing Christ Jesus as Lord and Saviour. Um, incidentally, the strong will be those that know that the freer they are in Christ, the more they are a slave to him and that they would, as Paul says elsewhere, not ever use their freedom in order to justify sin. The minute we do that, we have become the weak, or another form of being weak. So weak and strong in the faith is made up of all Christian is the makeup of all Christian churches. There are those of us here today. Some will be weaker in terms of their response uh, to the faith that God's given them, others will be stronger in certain areas and it's important that we don't see this as that some kind of them and us in the church i know we joke about it because the minute you mention it we're turning into a them and us the minute i might make a comment about <clears throat> oh that person do you know what they do they do this like gee that's a bit they oh, poor things they must really struggle right suddenly we're, we're making a distinction of superiority and and we actually think we're, we're the stronger brother or sister and that they're the weaker brother or sister when in fact by doing that Um, we've actually missed the whole point of the stronger brother, weaker brother kind of issue that Paul is addressing here. And so that's why Paul writes words of both warning to the weak and encouragement to the weak, as well as warning to the strong and encouragement to the strong. He's writing to both equally, because ultimately the aim is for a healthy church, a church that is unified both weak and strong, and remain unified to jesus christ and who do their best to look out for jesus christ in one another and to to understand one another and to love one another because christ is in them and christ is in us and and together that's what we're working through it's a spirit of unity in the church that is always paul's main concern it oozes through his letters that the church would be unified and why is that because jesus heart was for his church to be unified If we have a quick look ahead at chapter 15, I'm going to pinch verse 5 from there, where he says, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus, so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's his kind of summary statement of this. Well, here's the problem, or a problem. You know, it's one thing to acknowledge amongst us Uh, Here as a church, or in any church, there will be differences of strength of faith, some weaker than others, some stronger than others. But it's a very serious problem when those who are strong, or who think they are, turn on the weak and despise them, or mock them, or look down upon them as somehow inferior. It's also a very serious problem when those who are weak, or those who don't think they are, turn on the strong and pass spiritual judgment on them also looking down upon them as inferior which which was the problem here for the churches in Rome and which often continues to be the problem and still is a problem uh, as it occurs within churches today and when this happens unity is being threatened you know, even in Rome, and uh, you can call this a, a sport if you like, the early church had already engaged in this most favourite of Christian indoor sports called judging other Christians. And, and so Paul gets to the heart of the issue and he sets out to deal with this principle of acceptance towards each other, offering wisdom in how we might be able to achieve that unity and to ensure that that a unity in the gospel is maintained. The reality is that as Christian people we are all at different stages of spiritual maturity. And this maturity has nothing to do with age, actually. Sometimes quite the opposite. It's not as simple as just saying, oh, an older person who's been a Christian longer or in church longer is going to be naturally more mature than a younger Christian when it comes to Christian community, because that's, that's not how it works. There are far too many exceptions to that rule for it to become a rule. Not only that, but we also have very diverse backgrounds that colour and influence our attitudes and our practices. What might be absolutely deplorable to me might be something quite natural and comfortable for you. Missionaries, cross-cultural workers come across this all the time uh, from, from the West, you know. We, we, they, they, they come into other cultures and different communities who have been doing life the way they've been doing it for millennia, same as us, <clears throat> but, but quite differently. And they suddenly see things, they go, oh my goodness, I, what, they have to really work hard at this and recalibrate and and really seek what the Lord is doing in them and what the Lord's doing within themselves. Uh, You might be someone who thinks there's something that I do or participate in that you you wouldn't give a second thought to. And and you might look at that and you might think that um, there'll be others that go, well, actually, no, I've drawn a a line in the sand a long time ago about that and I'll I'll never cross it. That's just not something I'm going to engage in or participate in. But here's the point to what Paul is saying in God's word. He's saying, whatever the case, be careful not to pass judgment on each other's differences, especially when they are non-essentials to the gospel. Have a look at verse 10. He goes, so why do you condemn another believer? Why do you look down on other believers? Remember, we all stand before the judgment seat of God, the great equalizer. last bit with my words. Um, You see, we don't judge each other because we have a perfect judge. We have a perfect judge, uh, one uh, whom God has appointed to judge, and that's that's what I it mean. It's Jesus being Lord; He is our judge. So, what is it that we that we are to do instead? Well, verse 13. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment. Instead, make up your mind not to put a stumbling block or an obstacle in your brother or sister's way. This is where it's important that we shape our consciences on the gospel rather than on our personal experiences and preferences or our inner sense of morality and personal piety. You see, it's not up to you and I to determine who is weak and who is strong. These kind of matters can only be seen by the one who sees all our hearts for what they really are, the one who created us, the one who saved us in Jesus Christ. And when our consciences are shaped by God's gospel rather than our own judgments towards each other, We're actually free to to help one another, uh, to get alongside each other, to help each other grow in our faith journey towards maturity in Christ. With Jesus and all that God did for us through him, when that's our common focus, we have no time to be dragging each other down or to be looking for class distinctions and putting people in different boxes and things. Uh, We won't have an opportunity to be leading people astray. Instead, we'll see Christ in them we'll see christ in others his work in them and we'll be mindful of what it is christ is doing well as we finish i want to give us a couple of tips three in particular and it come straight out of our passage this morning what is it we can do to make sure we're not a stumbling block to someone and not judging them well what we can do is we can see jesus and his work in them we can see jesus and his work in them and it's a very simple way Um, there's this age-old mantra that christians have been declaring amongst themselves for a long time it's kind of said in various ways during communion often Uh, not explicitly but this is what we kind of say to one another this is a mantra and some churches and some traditions would say this often and regularly christ has died christ has risen christ will come again and you can see Those three statements, even in this passage uh, between verses 9 and 12, these are three powerful truths that Paul draws upon in in how Jesus is at work in us uh, as brothers and sisters in Christ. First of all, Christ died for us as our saviour. God has accepted our weaker brothers and sisters already in Christ. Christ has accepted all of us. So we have this obligation to do the same, to accept one another in the same way. How can we possibly judge another person Or lead them astray, by being a stumbling block, when Christ died for them. When Christ saved them and gave his life for them, just like for us. What about the second part? Christ has risen from the dead to be Lord. This is is the bit that um, gives Jesus the right to be the judge. Jesus is Lord and Master of everyone who believes in him. The weak, the strong, and all those in between. We are all equal servants of Jesus, who is our one Lord. There is no hierarchy or benchmark by which any of us have the right to judge or condemn one another. Jesus is Lord and only Jesus. There's Jesus and then there's the rest of us, no matter what it is you've done or do or are going to do. What about the third point? Christ is the rightful judge. We dare not stand in the seat that is reserved for God alone. That's what's happening here when we judge. When we pass judgment on each other with regards to non essential secondary issues, God alone is our judge. He has appointed his risen Son, Jesus, to judge all people. So let's be sure that we don't presume to do it for him in the meantime, yeah? There it is three very simple statements that Paul uses in this scripture passage to remind us of who we are and who Jesus is. I wonder, Church, as, um, as we conclude, if I can get, get us all to do something a little different, um, I'm going to ask for everyone to stand and I'd be great to recite these three statements together uh, as we move into song so that the musos can come on down. They can say it as they're walking the long walk to the front. Um, but let's all stand and let's be mindful of each other as we make this declaration together. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again do it one more time. Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. Keep that in your minds as you look, as you live and as you love one another. Thanks guys. Thank you. beautiful song to sing together and uh, trust that you uh, remain safe on the roads as you leave this place Uh, for those uh, company members if you'd love to come down the front perhaps over here uh, after the service we can get underway uh, with our meeting but we look forward uh, to gathering again same time same place next sunday as god's people now may god who gives this patience and encouragement help you live in complete harmony with each other as is fitting for followers of Jesus then all of us can join together with one voice, giving praise and glory to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.